This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. With how professional the Mexican But are we ready? I don't think. Reformed friends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. The Nicaraguan regime, like Venezuela and Cuba, will feel the full weight of America's robust sanctions regime. The axis of evil is out. The troika of tyranny is in. And here to help me understand what's going on is Pedro Borelli, a longtime expert on Latin America, among other things, uh, a former one-time board member of uh, PDVSA, the Venezuelan oil company, and also my colleague Moises Rendon of CSIS, an expert on Venezuela and Venezuelan himself. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Pedro, let's let's start by talking about uh, there've been been some developments in terms of the Trump administration's policy towards the region, and um, specifically on November first, National Security Advisor John Bolton kind of uh, made an important speech in Miami, in which he sort of laid out the the administration's uh, take on Latin America. But before we get to that, I'd, I'd sort of like to. Contrast that with, um, you know, if, if we recall, Secretary Tillerson made a trip to the region last February, um, in which he sort of laid out uh, the administration's vision for the hemisphere. And if we go back, and uh, the, there were three pillars that he enunciated um, right before his trip: economic growth, security, and democratic governance. It's what he talked about a lot. And then he he narrowed in uh, on. China and Venezuela. Those seem to be the focus of the, the trip. And uh, my take on the time was that this is sort of a very similar to, to previous U.S. policies. I mean, those three pillars sounded very familiar. Uh, and now we have um, John Bolton talking about a troika of tyranny. So you were there at that speech, correct? Yes. Okay. So what, you, you were a firsthand witness. What was your impression of, of the speech itself um, and then the policy underlying it? Is this a is this a change from what Secretary Tillerson uh, talked about in February? Is it a continuation? Is it what are we looking at in terms of uh, a policy? First of all, I don't think it's a, a, a radical change. I think it's a, an evolution because things have changed in the region from one speech to the other. I honestly believe that the Tillerson speech was kind of a, the desperate tour. I mean, it was almost a sense that he was trying to do something in order to prove his worthiness. I think everybody understood that he was on his way out. So it wasn't that uh, momentous. It was almost like, you know, why is he doing this? Why is he taking uh, lines that are a lot stronger than previous policy uh, had been? Uh, People thought that he was trying to endear himself with a White House that had a tougher view in Latin America than what the State Department had. So that went by. And since then, until now, Latin America has changed radically. I mean, the elections that have happened, I mean, this was the year of elections. This was also curiously meant to be the year of the Americas for the United States. I mean, part of what Tillerson was saying is we're going to engage with with Latin America for the whole year. This will be the year of the Americas. But we always fall back into the position as a former senator used to say, you know, Latin America uh, is a a region that however important it is, you know, there's no terrorists, no nukes, therefore no problems. So it's always the region that can be left a little bit behind. What we saw in Miami last week was basically something that, you know, Bolton has been around for a few months. 
Uh, now, quite a lot of months, nobody knew what his position was because he came in obviously focused on his big hat issues that he always had, which is Iran, uh, North Korea, and the whole Russia relationship. And therefore, I think people were expectant. Um, he had changed his director for Western Hemisphere, and Mauricio uh, Claver Cardona had come in, and people were kind of egging, the, particularly the Cuban Americans in, in Miami were egging to see what would come out. And I think also, it, that's why I don't think it's that much of a revolution. They were responding to evolution, things that have happened in the region, among which it's Nicaragua becoming a very fast-moving crisis. And when you look at Nicaragua and you look at Venezuela, which had already been in the attention, a great deal of focus of the administration, uh, which was a change from the Obama administration, um, you had to find that you, know, you had two crises and you had an instigator, which was Cuba. And it was basically nobody was talking about Cuba and Cuba's role. And I think that was what the speech was all about. The speech is, there, you know, the region is going well. There's a lot of of this democracy, uh, changes the government, even in the case of Mexico. I mean, the administration has been very forthcoming in a relationship with Lopez Obrador, and Pompeo went very quickly to Mexico to meet with them after he, um, he, he secured his election. But I think the fundamental message is there's countries that are not only going backwards, but in serious crisis, and there's a third country called Cuba, which is the instigator of this crisis. So I think that was important. That was really important because remember, we're moving from a period of engagement with Cuba. Uh, that was a big policy of the Obama administration. That was supposed to be the legacy of the Obama administration. And clearly, it kind of became weird to deal with Cuba and engage with Cuba, but then have a crisis in Venezuela that was clearly instigated by Cuba, but kind of deal with this as separate things. And I think even the Obama administration realized very quickly that they could not engage with Cuba and Venezuela, that they could have a conversation, but it wasn't leading anywhere. So at the end of the day, there was always going to be a conflict. I think you now saw it in Miami, where this thing is now clear out. And I think in the following actions, we're going to see how deeply this will go, whether this will involve sanctions on Cuban individuals, Cuban military officers, Cuban intelligence officers uh, who are involved in kind of the maneuverings in both Nicaragua and Venezuela. So let's talk about Cuba for a second, because as we know, there are at least two big domestic constituencies that follow Cuba a lot. One is the Cuban community in Miami, and, and it's not as unified as it used to be, right? There's a range of opinion in terms of liberalization and you know that sort of thing. But then the other big constituency is the business community, which is generally, by and large, been sort of pro, uh, how do we call it? not pro-Cuba, but pro, I guess, normalization for, for business reasons. How, uh, any reaction by those two communities to um, John Bolton's speech? Well, I mean, I think people gave up hope on Cuba very, very quickly. And I would say that in, in, in a way that hasn't been studied sufficiently, while Obama took this risk and moved and, and saw there was a lot of support, and, and that he was dividing the Cuban-American community on the matter. He actually did something which people haven't focused a lot of attention in, is that when he went to Havana, the speech that he gave was fantastic to rally even more support in the Cuban-American community in Miami, but it's a disaster vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with Cuba. And that was the end of re-engagement with Cuba. At that moment, when he finished that speech, which was probably the best speech he gave, that speech was was a actually written for the wrong audience. And it was delivered in Cuba 
to a live audience, beautifully translated, and basically it exacerbated a conflict that already existed vis-a-vis the U.S. relationship between Raul Castro and the hardcore Fidelistas. And that was the end. I mean, so whatever expectations people had of something coming in in terms of investment opportunities, that's the moment it stopped. It's not anything that the Trump administration has done. I would say the Trump administration has actually acted a lot more cautiously than people thought they would act vis-a-vis Cuba. The relationship was dead the moment Barack Obama got back in Air Force One and left Havana. Um, Moises, I'd like you to, to, to add in here a little bit. Let's talk. We're, we're going to stay in Cuba, but we're now going to sort of shift from Cuba to Venezuela. What do we know about Cuba's role? We know that they've been meddling in Venezuela for a long time. What do we know about what they're doing right now in, in terms of whether it's advisors, whether it's money, influence? What is what is Cuba's presence in Venezuela and the Maduro regime look like now? Yes, thank you, Richard. Well, the relationship and the dependency between Colum- uh, between Venezuela and Cuba has been well known, and there is a very strong presence of intelligence officials, Cuban intelligence officials, uh, uh, providing assistance to the Maduro regime on how to deal with political crisis in Venezuela. Um, there is hard data of how many doctors, Cuban doctors, are in Venezuela. There are about right now. There in 2018, there are about 17,000 doctors in Venezuela. And, and, and that's part of this program that the Chavez and Fidel Castro regime called Misión Barrio Adentro, no? to try to provide Cuban medical assistance to poor Venezuelans. In exchange for that, Venezuela is, is been sending thousands of barrels of oil to Cuba. And obviously, since the Venezuelan oil production has been declining in the last few years, and the, the shipments has also been declining, if Pedro can correct me, but I think the peak was at some point was about 200,000 barrels. Today we've seen about 50,000 barrels that are shipped to Cuba every day. Um, so that, that's well known. There is a dependency between Cuba and Venezuela. I think having a policy facing and tackling both regimes makes sense. But this is where I want to get Pedro's thoughts too, because on November 1st, um, Bolton uh, used this term, the Troika of Tyranny. And it's not only involving Cuba and Venezuela, but it's also involving Nicaragua. So I have a couple of questions. One, why we are labeling these three countries Troika of Tyranny and why we're doing this now? And the second question would be why we're not including Bolivia? because Bolivia is also a communist regime that is involved in narco-trafficking. Um, Evo Morales has long relationship with the Castro regime, with the Maduro regime. So, I mean, at some point it makes sense to include Bolivia because we're, the Bolivian people are also facing repression. The Evo Morales changed, amended the constitution despite the fact that the Bolivian people reject that amendment twice. So I, I that's what I'm trying to figure out here. Like, I think the easy uh, answer is that the quartet attorney doesn't sound as good as Troika attorney. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but also, you know, he doesn't, I mean, remember he also called them the three stooges of socialism, which I, I thought was, the three stooges are actually funny, <laughs> hilarious, and this, this three guys could not be called stooges. Um, I, I actually believe he has a lot to do with U.S. Pot, politics. I think that the, the constituent, the base of Nicaraguans, Cuban-Americans and Venezuelan diaspora here in Miami are present. The Bolivia issue really looks 
far away. I mean, I, I don't think it adds anything to the discourse. I think by default, Bolivia gets it. You don't want to antagonize a, a, an arrangement in that country that could eventually sort itself out. Um, and you're taking, you know, this guy as a minor player versus, you know, three really big, important players with strong vocal opponents in this country. So that's, I think, why why that came out. On, on the Cuba side, there's something that you mentioned that I think it's important um, to clarify. Cuba plays three roles in my mind uh, in Venezuela. It really provides repressive knowledge, and with it is the whole counterintelligence, and that is applied both to the political opposition and to military dissent. So the government uses Cuban know-how in order to control dissent. The second thing, which is more dangerous uh, in, in a way, in a very strange way, is that economic advice is coming from Cuba. And when you realize this chaos, this chaos is made in Cuba. And the measures that were announced a few weeks ago by Maduro were, if they were supposed to control hyperinflation, they actually did the opposite. They were, but And they did the opposite because I think most of the content of the measures were political. There were a desire to further advance Venezuela in a communist communal model. And, and, and that was a you know, unifying salaries and eliminating labor gains and stuff like that. That's very hardcore. So there's two pieces there that I think the Cubans play hard. It's economic advice, and that's been run by Orlando Borrego, who's an 86-year-old guy who, who basically destroyed Cuba's economy at one point. And the whole repressive apparatus is run by the vice president of the Council of State, Ramiro Valdez, who's 85, and it's being the big repressor in Cuba. So those are kind of the guys in there. But I think the third role, uh, and I think that's why the, the the I think that's where the exchange of oil went, is that they provided intelligence and protection. And Cuba, which has a formidable spy apparatus in the United States, has guaranteed Venezuela access to information about what is being thought about Venezuela in the city that we're in. And I think it is in exchange for that protection that they all went. If you look down at the doctors, I think there's not 17,000 doctors left anymore. I mean, that must have been a peak number. The Cubans do not have antibodies for the kind of violence that exists in Venezuela. The Cuban doctors that I've talked to always said is, no wonder people don't want to work right. in the barrios, in the shanty towns. This is incredibly violent. And if Cuba has achieved something, one of the few things that he has achieved, um, that's not a myth, is that there is no violence. There's no street violence. You know, you walk out of your house, and if you don't attack the government, you know you're going to return to your house. I mean, you're not going to have a good meal. You're not going to get a good salary, but you're not going to lose your life. They're not ready and don't understand very well the kind of random violence that exists in Venezuela. And I think a lot of those, whether they're doctors or sports trainers or whoever were there, never really liked it. I think the numbers... It is in the interest of the Cuban government that we talk high numbers because they use those numbers to repay debt. So the bigger the number, they multiply it by $2,500 per month per each person, and they come up with a bigger number. So this is a very highly untransparent thing, but I, I think progressive people are not finding Cubans in their day-to-day -day life. I think it's, it's very diminished, and it's very 
like I said, in the intelligence, counterintelligence, a little bit in the economic ministries, and in the whole identification, registries, public notaries, where they do play a very right. key role. But I think the, 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 on the education side and the health side and the sports training, that has really come down a lot. So let's come back to uh, November 1st and John Bolton's speech. And as I understand, it wasn't just a speech. There were new sanctions that were announced, right, on, on gold in particular. Um, Pedro and then and then Moises, what it's um, you know we've been talking about uh, sanctions for a while, and um, the U.S. has levied sanctions on Venezuela among other countries. One, let's talk about the effectiveness. How, do you, do you think the existing sanctions have worked in any way? Do you think these new sanctions are going to have an effect? And um, you know what are the prospects that the United States at some point goes goes full, you know, full Monty, and basically you know all oil exports out of Venezuela. Uh, and would would that have an effect? So let's. I know that's a, lo- a loaded question. It's a, lo- a long well, I mean, question. I, I, let's start. I think um, smart sanctions, sanctions that are very targeted, very directed to people who are involved in either massive corruption, drug trafficking, or the destruction of the democratic system. I think they make sense. Um, clearly, um, the way to judge them is is what is the reaction not of the people that you sanctioned, but of the people you didn't sanction. And I think that the effectiveness is judged by people no longer being willing to do certain things, uh, people sending representatives to talk to make sure that they're not included in an expansion of sanctions. And I think that's the way the U.S. government judges where the sanctions are for. More of a deterrent effect. It's a deterrent effect. It's a divisive effect. It's I don't want to be part of the sanction. I want to be split. And if you're trying to take cracks that exist within the regime and exacerbate those cracks, that's the way to do it. And I think... At the end of it, in every dialogue attempt that has taken place in Venezuela, the number one issue that the government is talking about is remove the sanctions. So it's clearly it's hurting them. Um, and in some cases, it's hurt them a lot. I mean, some people who have been sanctioned where lots of money has been have been recovered, and that's the case of Vice President Tarek El Aysami, where his front man almost immediately they got close to a billion dollars of money that he had in the U.S. And also with Yosal Cabello, another of the strong men in the government were his frontman on the first day, first day that he was sanctioned, they were able to confiscate $820 million. I mean, so those are big amounts of money. Those, that's a powerful thing, that, that the, the inability to travel, um, the stigma of having a government full of sanctioned people who are being outed as either drug traffickers or abusers of human rights, that's making the relationship quite difficult. A lot of countries, even countries like Russia, have a hard time sitting around and meeting with some of the sanctioned individuals. I mean, they don't like it. I, I give you an, as, as an example, the, the Minister of Finance, who was sanctioned, uh, when he went to Russia to sign a deal that was in the interest of Russia, it wasn't in the interest of Venezuela. Russia was not giving Venezuela anything. They're just getting better documentation and badly documented loans. <laughs> when, they, they, when they finished and they signed the deal, the Minister of Finance of Russia did not want to have a press conference with a sanctioned you know, Minister of Finance from Venezuela, and the Venezuelans had to go and do a press conference in the embassy on their own, but the Russians did not want to partake in that conversation, standing by a sanctioned it individual. It creates a real stigma for those people. I, I, think, I, I think it's creating a real stigma. In terms of the evolution of sanctions, I think um, there is no need to do sanctions, further sanctions on oil. I think the sanctions that they've done related to PDVSA in terms of Basically, not allowing Venezuela Venezuela to issue new debt, uh, warning people through through uh, FinCEN 
not to touch Perez and warning what are the red flags of dealing with certain type of transactions, splitting off Citgo, which is 100% owned by Venezuela, from Perez in terms of no ability of this company to transact financially or you know, send dividends from Citgo to Venezuela. That's already pretty hard. The real sanction on PDVSA and on oil is basically Nicolás Maduro. I mean, he's the guy who's running this com- country to the ground. And I don't think you make any sense to add to this. I mean, PDVSA and Venezuela is becoming irrelevant in the oil market just simply by actions that the government is taking on, on its own. That goal thing is, is a little bit different. The goal thing is that having shut down a lot of the financial flexibility that the government had, they realized that they were using gold to, to go around those sanctions. But it's not the issue. The, the, the gold thing is deeper than that. I think what the U.S. government and other governments have began to see is not just evasive moves and a quick way of getting money. is is the manner in which a gold has been mined, the destruction of the environment, the destruction of local communities, the illegality of the entire business, the presence of the Colombian guerrilla as an integral part of the exploration, the further movement of gold from Turkey where it's been refined to Iran. This is just getting to be a lot more complex. And and, and I think what the Treasury is trying to do is stigmatize Venezuelan gold as if you know as conflict diamonds in that sense. Obviously there are diamonds here also and there, you know and there's coltan and other things. So this is just a rogue state destroying its environment and associating itself with criminal elements in order to save itself, you know, by getting access to financial uh, resources that they can't do otherwise because of the sanctions. So this is going to come really hard. I th- and, and I think they know what's going on. Um, they, they've understood it from from the point of view as to how the money flows, to you know, where the gold ends up, to literally satellite imaging of the destruction of one of the most pristine areas of the world, which was the states of Bolivar and Amazonas in Venezuela. Let me just jump in very quick. I, I agree with Pedro 100%. I think sanctions make sense. It's just a divide. In terms of dividing the regime, it's been effective, and, and I think in, in that regard needs to be continued. However, I do think sanctions just one tools of many that the U.S. government and other governments in the world can use. And this is where we, and we have written this in CSIS, uh, we're looking at January 10th as another opportunity where the international community can increase that pressure on the Maduro regime. Based on the Venezuelan constitution, and there's a new presidential period starting in January 10th of 2019. And however, the presidential elections held earlier this year, in May 20th, um, were not only unfree and unfair, but they were not recognized by almost 50 countries of the war. Um, the vast majority are democratic free countries, like the US, like the Americas. Uh, in the Americas, we have the Lima Group, Canada, the European Union. So they, were, they did not recognize those results, uh, and, and the debate is on right now. What to do, how to respond post-January 10th, are, are they recognizing Maduro or not as president of Venezuela, and if so, who are they recognizing as the head of the government in Venezuela? Is the National Assembly the right body to be recognized? So I, I think January 10th brings a very valuable opportunity for the international community to look at Maduro as not a legitimate uh, president anymore, but look at the Democratic National Assembly as the legitimate body. And that way, the, the, the implications post-January 10th can, 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 can bring us more tools like 
sanctions, but also stop negotiating with Maduro. He's not the legitimate president anymore. Start negotiating with the National Assembly about any international trade, any international agreements with Venezuela. All the ambassadors that represent Madu the Maduro administration needs to be repelled and removed from, from all these 50 countries. So in that regard, I think we need to think on, on January 10th as a very important date, and I think that's that's one of the tools that the international community so can So let use. me just clarify for our listeners why January 10th. Um, so the argument, if I understand it correctly, Moises, is that, um, okay, Maduro is in his current term, and then on January 10th, he gets sworn in for a, for presumably a, no, a new no, term. No, 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 he got elected. I mean, let me jump in. He got elected for a six-year period, mm -hmm. which expires January 10th. Okay. There, was, there should have been an election in December to replace him. He decided to hold an election in May, an election that did not fulfill, as Moises correctly said, any condition as a free and fair election. Nobody important in the world recognized it. So he elected himself in an illegitimate election. So as his real term expires and nobody recognizes that election that got him another supposedly six-year period, the countries that did not recognize the election cannot recognize him as the ongoing president. And therefore, the only institutions that the only institution that exists is a National Assembly, which is recognized as a legitimately elected body. And the ele that assembly then will have to constitutionally figure out how to fill the void that there's no legitimate president and, and name an interim president and then call a new election. And at the same time, obviously, they could name its representatives. They could name a transition government. They could do a, a lot of things can happen. And, and Moses is using the correct term. This is another pressure and one that actually is scaring the government. They really realize that what they did in May now has consequences in January. Are there any legal, uh, international legal precedents for this of sort of uh, a government trying to slide into a next term through fraudulent elections and the international community saying, no, you can't do that? And with well, it happened to, it happened to, actually, in an interesting way, it happened in Panama uh, with Noriega. And, and there's a division. And the, the embassy in Washington was basically held by the opposition. Uh, and, and the United States recognized an opposition person as in, in, in that political conflict that existed at that moment. So that's a Latin American incident. I think this is very, I mean, almost very few things in Venezuela have precedent and very few things in Venezuela will create precedent because it is such a unique set of things. And most people actually look at it that way. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a very strange set of things. At the UN General Assembly um, this past September, this discussion of September of, of January 10th came up, and most people said, yeah, let's let's use that. But exactly as Moses says, as yet another way of forcing. I, I believe, Richard, that what is clear in the minds of most democratic countries in the world, and even, I would add, the Chinese, and deep below even the Russians, is that Maduro has to go, that the solution to this problem requires a change of government. And it's just how that government changes where there's a difference. And then what I think nobody has really focused on is what comes afterwards. And that's where the real question of Venezuela is. And I'll just give you an example just to get your the listeners to, to, to ponder as, as they look forward to this crisis is a lot of what we are seeing has happened in Venezuela in terms of it evolving into a criminal state or a mafia state 
has to be undone. So a new government, a new transition government, which would require billions of dollars of financial assistance, an amazing amount of technical assistance, will also need a lot of security assistance. Because the two wars that it will have, the moment it breaks its links with the narcotics trade and has to actually fight it, and the moment it breaks its partnership with the Colombian guerrilla and has to oust it from Venezuela, you will have a conflict that you haven't had till now. So you get a sense that the crisis in Venezuela could not be worse. It actually will get worse. Because the moment that you have to exercise sovereignty and try to to make sure that that you put in place a system of law and order and a judicial system, you will have the conflict that you've avoided because the state now is in part is a cartel. The state and the cartel are the same thing, so there can't be a drug war. And the state is in partnership with a guerrilla that occupies, the Colombian guerrillas that occupies a great part of the territory. The big challenge is not that you get rid of Maduro, is that once you get rid of him, you will probably have a level of engagement at the security and financial level that that conversation I don't think is taking place. That is the, the real fear that I have, that the, 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 the size of the bill and the complexity of the task is not well understood. And, you know, you break it, you fix it kind of thing. If you get rid of Maduro, you're going to have to deal with that. That conversation is one that the American government, the U.S. administration, is not having with the American people. The American people do not know or are not aware that a huge bill could come up and that post-Maduro leaving, you might have to commit military assistance that will make Plan Colombia and the Iniciativa Merida look like child's play because this is really what you were trying to avoid in both Colombia and Mexico. In Venezuela, you do have a narco state. And even if you get rid of Maduro and 20 of his cronies, the structure, the narcotics system, the infrastructure remains there. And the way that they've opened the country for the FARC, the ELN, Ecuadorian guerrillas, and others, you know, that is something that'll be task number one for a transition government. So, Peter, that's a perfect segue because I actually wanted to talk very briefly about Colombia. Uh, you know, a couple of days after Bolton's speech, of course, the president announced that he couldn't go to Colombia, didn't have time, or we're not quite sure why. Um, what's what's your take on that? I'm guessing it's not a good one, but w- what effect is that going to have on precisely what you just said, explaining uh, the U.S. interest and what's at stake for the U.S. in the region to the to the rest of the country or to the you know the political body? Um, and then the other data point, very quickly, is today, in fact. Um, uh, Kimberly Breyer will be named as the or be sworn as the Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs. So we, t- we finally have a person, a senior person, in charge of Western Hemisphere policy. So quickly, if both of you could comment on those two things: one, the president's decision to cancel yet another another trip to Colombia and the region, and uh, Kimberly Breyer being the new Assistant Secretary, and what effect is that going to have on on U.S. policy in the region? Well, I think. Uh- Colombia is one of those uh, situations where the, the, uh, you had an election that had a dramatic shift internally and a good alignment externally with the United States. So I'm not sure that the visit, other than disappointment, most presidential visits by United States presidents are a pain in the neck. I mean, they're ex- highly disruptive, expensive, and, and, and aggravating. I mean, they're just a, a, that doesn't change, I think, the relationship that exists between the Duke administration and, and the Trump administration. 
Uh, they're very aligned, very aligned in terms of what has to happen in Colombia and very aligned in terms of their concerns about Venezuela. So, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a protocol, a diplomatic faux pas there. They shouldn't have announced it. Um, but given how difficult and expensive it is to plan a trip, they probably announced it, and then they realized that it didn't fit in. I don't think it's going to affect anything. In terms of Kimberly Breyer, I mean, it's really important to understand that since Roberta Jacobson left to Mexico almost now four years ago, three and a half years, four, three and a half years ago, you know, this job of Assistant Secretary of Western Hemisphere being in the hands of people who have not been confirmed, so just caretakers. And that, more than anything, reflected that Latin America is not that important. I mean, back to my concept, no terrorists, no nukes, no problem. It wasn't a priority. No Assistant Secretary. <laughs> no, assist, no Assistant Secretary. I actually think that, that, that what, what you now will get with Kimberly Breyer there and with Mauricio um, Claret at, at the White House, I think you're going to get a lot more traction very quickly. Now, she has to build a team because it's not only there was an assistant, is that that had created all kinds of problems. Most of the policy, for example, vis-a-vis Venezuela had been monopolized for years by Tom Shannon, who was the senior most Latin Americanist who had ever climbed in the in, in the echelons of of the State Department. And I think that, you know, it's kind of Kimberly will have to create a Latin American policy in the post-Shannon era. That's the challenge. And Shannon had a formidable presence in the region, although he made two critical mistakes, both in his assessment of Brazil and what you could achieve with uh, the PT, the Partido de los Trabajadores, with President Lula and then President uh, Rousseff, and definitely on Venezuela. So she has to just walk in and get that done. So I think it's an interesting moment. Um, and then the administration does look at the region uh, in, in, in a way that it doesn't get enough credit. If you look at the way the Grupo de Lima works, which is a group in which the United States is not part of, but intervenes via video in, 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 in the meetings and stuff like that, the president actually does spend a lot of time talking to President Macri, President Piñera, President Duque. I mean, he is very fluid. In, in I mean, he called uh, uh, Jair Bolsonaro almost immediately upon winning the presidency of Brazil. He he actually likes the region. He, he doesn't look at it. He probably doesn't have as much time as we would like him to have, but he's not turning his back on it. I actually believe that this is a better administration for Latin America than the previous administration, despite the fact that, you know, superficially you might say the opposite. I actually think the level of engagement is more is more real. Yeah. Moises, you get the final word. No, I, I agree with Pedro, but let me just... Uh, say a few words about Kim. I mean, I had the great opportunity to work directly with her for almost a year in CSIS, and and I think she she's very analytical. Her experience is going to be right on target when it comes to Venezuela. She really understands the Venezuela issue. And, Mex- and Mexico, which is yeah, you know, the new exactly. unknown. I mean, she's coming in with a tremendous amount of Mexican experience yeah. at exactly the right moment. Yes, no, exactly. I I I I. I Really happy that that she's taking the lead on, on on now policy regarding Venezuela and Mexico and other other countries too. But she 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 she's very. I think she's gonna serve well not only the region but also the 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 U.S. government and the U.S. people. So it's it's great to to have her there now. Uh, thanks very much for joining me, gentlemen. Uh, we've uh, talked more probably about Venezuela on this podcast than any other country, and I suspect we're going to be talking more uh, again in the future. But thanks very much for your your expert commentary and analysis. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.